0: So welcome to uh, Saturday night, evening, Saturday evening at Abayagiri, change in weather, cool, rainy, very pleasant and fewer people, some of the monastic community away, and uh, not as many guests staying here as we've had in the past, so a very sense of, very strong sense of quiet and ease, well-being through the community. Uh, There's been a a couple of morning reflections uh, past uh, two days that have centered around the theme of Mm. harmony and and balance in the path of of practice. And I thought to add a few, my two cents worth uh, along those lines. Ajahn uh, in his Morning Reflection a couple of days ago, uh, talked about uh, the beauty of uh, many parts harmonizing together into a whole, uh, using the example of a symphony, yeah. with many different players, instruments, all uh, working and operating at the same time, kind of doing their individual uh, pieces, but as part of a greater whole, that, that uh, the final result being an, can be an incredibly moving experience uh, in the music realm uh, when all of the parts are uh, well-practiced, well-honed, uh, and all the instruments are well-tuned, the players are well-practiced, uh, all coming together into Uh, something that can be quite exhilarating, quite moving. And just emphasizing how that relates to the path of practice, uh, that many different things have to come together into a whole uh, for the practice to work. All the parts have to be working with each other in harmony. The analogy that uh, comes to mind for me maybe not quite so inspiring, but is uh, just from my days uh, before I was a monk, one of my uh, habit uh, one of my uh, hobbies I guess or uh, pastimes was bicycling I, I was kind of an avid bicycle tourist, not a racer, but just bicycle touring and <clears throat> part of it was getting to learn how to maintain, uh, repair, fix, adjust a bicycle, and took some courses in that. And uh, one of the um, uh, things that one can learn how to do in bicycle maintenance is what's called truing the wheel. Uh, And it's, uh, you've got your two wheels on your bike, of course, and you can take the wheels off. And as you know, the you know, the bicycle has its hub and its spokes that go out to the to the rim, <clears throat> where the tire is attached. But some of you may or may not know, all of those spokes uh, are adjustable and they screw in uh, from the hub to the to the rim, <clears throat> and they can be loose or they can be tight. So the idea is to have uh, them just in perfect tension if there's some spokes that are too loose or some spokes that are too tight then the wheel will be what's called out of true it won't it won't turn in a very smooth way it'll it'll kind of wobble uh, within the within the bicycle frame and the bike doesn't work very well so you have a truing stand which is you take the wheel off and you put it into this trueing stand and you can visually watch as the, as, the, as you spin the wheel, whether it's in true or not. And if it's, if it's wobbling a little bit, you tighten the spoke that's loose, that's loose, or loosen the spoke that's tight. And it's kind of a, there's a lot of spokes, so you have to, it takes a while to do that until you get the wheel <clears throat> turning nice and straight and smooth without any kind of wobbling. <clears throat> so uh, I remember, once I decided to take a trip, uh, a bicycle trip to England, it was my first uh, foray, in. I'd done a lot of bicycling in, in the States, but uh, uh, going to England, and so I got my bicycle all set up, and there were several of us going on this trip, and and uh, got it all maintained, fixed the brakes, and lubricated everything, got the tension in the chain nice, and all the derailers perfectly adjusted, all those kinds of things that you do, intrude trued the wheels to make sure they were spinning. And then took the bike apart, packed it up, and uh, shipped it uh, with myself on the plane. You three other friends joined me later on. Uh, and we were going to go bicycle through the, the countryside of England for a few weeks. And, of course, what you have to do, though, is first land in London. Uh, at the airport, and somehow get yourself out to the country. And we were staying in London uh, for a few nights uh, before doing that. And um, there was just this one little hitch of getting from where we were across London to the train station to to get out at, to get out of London. And none of us had ever bicycled, much less driven in a country where you go on the left side of the road. In a you know, London's a a very, very big city. Um, So it was quite daunting when we started out to get across town. Uh, And uh, if we hadn't trued up our wheels uh, uh, and gotten everything in perfect working order, it would have been a disaster. It was almost a disaster (laughs) anyway, just as you're entering these huge uh, avenues with, I don't know how many, you know, hundreds, thousands of cars all moving at a very rapid rate and going around roundabouts and entering and leaving and dodging, and we had not a clue what we were doing. But we had more. I guess we were we were all kind of stupid enough that <laughs> didn't worry about it too much. Uh, we just, uh, if we had, if we were all a little bit older and wiser, we probably wouldn't have been doing it. But uh, just getting in there and just basically jumping into the traffic and moving, but having to keep this sense of clarity and mindfulness, alertness to everything that was going on around this all-around awareness of traffic coming in from the right, traffic coming in from the left, entering a roundabout, going around, getting off of it without killing ourselves or, or getting somebody else killed. But if the bicycle hadn't been tuned up perfectly, if the wheels weren't turning perfect we wouldn't have made it through to the other side and, and out of the city into to what we would call relative freedom. So the importance of having a, a vehicle to take us where we want to go to safety is really important. It's important to have that vehicle working uh, just as perfectly as you can make it. So that's the analogy that comes to my mind uh, in thinking about the path as well uh, and how all the parts of the path have to be working together uh, in harmony uh, in, in precision in a certain way for us to receive the results that, that we want to receive. There's a, uh, a really wonderful sutta teaching that popped into my mind uh, in the past day or two, as uh, we were having these morning reflections, that is points to this aspect of of the path of needing to be in harmony, uh, called uh, the Great Forty. It's in the Majjhima and it's a very clear exposition of how the Eightfold Path works uh, together. The factors of the Eightfold Path have to work in harmony with each other uh, to support each other. Uh, it's not just a separate series of um, qualities that we need to develop that somehow um, you know, work individually, uh, and we need all eight to, to, to do it, but, um, but that they actually support and feed upon each other, uh, too. Uh, as as the phrase goes in the sutta, the uh, various factors uh, run in circle around each other. And the uh, uh, the Buddha starts out uh, the the teaching. Uh, I'm not sure what the context might have been. You know, you could picture the maybe that the monks that were gathered around were talking about uh, various aspects of the practice. Maybe uh, right samadhi, uh, right concentration, right. Collectedness, right? Uh, uh, composure, maybe better translation for samadhi. Uh, and then the Buddha starts out the sutta with, oh, bhikkhus, listen. Uh, I'm going to talk with you about uh, noble right concentration, uh, samma samadhi. And uh, with its, and then he says, with its supports and requisites. Uh, so not just all alone by itself. And basically, he, he says in his introduction that uh, Samatha Samadhi is uh, real noble right concentration uh, is dependent on the uh, existence and, and practice of the other seven aspects of, of the path. Um, right view, right intention, right uh, right in, yeah right view, right intention, right. Uh, uh, speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right con- and then leading to and supporting uh, right concentration. Uh, and uh, what is samadhi? he asks, he says, samasamadhi is this unification of mind with these other seven factors uh, in concert uh, with it. Unification of mind. And then he goes on to develop that theme uh, using... Um Going through all the factors of the path and uh, talking about how various factors uh, revolve around and support each other, starting with right view, right view comes first uh, and expounds a little bit on on the uh, both the mundane and transcendent aspects of right view and I think it's it's worth reviewing some of these uh, parts of the path. Uh, in in their whole kind of stepping back, uh, zooming out the map a bit, um, and seeing what the overall how the overall path works together, and just we we chant uh, about the noble eightfold path, and these f- factors are mentioned. So it's it's uh, it right there in the chanting book when we do chant that, but it's it's worth mentioning again just to see the breadth of. How we have to train this mind to receive the results that we're seeking, the freedom that we're seeking. It's not just an application of mind to a meditation technique. Sometimes you get that impression as the practices come to the West that it's all about meditation. Um, and, and, you know, of course, that's a, a significant part of it. But there's these, all of these factors have to be operating in conjunction with each other for us to really realize the full benefits of the path. It can't be a piecemeal approach. And so the, the right view, the Buddha defines, talks about the mundane right view. And this is this is the part of the Eightfold Path that's a categorical teaching. Mm. It's like this is the view that we need to basically uh, adopt uh, and understand uh, to be able to correctly apply the rest of the path. And the rest of the path tends to be more instructive attitudes or practices, uh, body, speech, and mind, uh, that we we pick up to train the mind. But the view, the right view, uh, is the context. It's why we're doing it. And it's some of the whys about how it actually works. So it's uh, something that is a categorical teaching, in a sense. And the factors of mundane right view that the Buddha says are, these, are, these are things to adopt as an actual view uh, and uh, develop an understanding around are uh, the fact that uh, the, the wording is sometimes a bit cryptic, so I'll just use more common language to describe some of the aspects of right view, but uh, uh, that there is the results of uh, giving and generosity, Uh, That that's a major player in in how we develop the heart, develop the mind. Um, That uh, probably one of the most important aspects of right view is there is the results of good and bad action, essentially establishing the importance of the law of kama. uh, That what we do, what we think, how we speak has an effect uh, there is a result from any form of action, body, speech, and mind. Uh, and it will affect our hearts, our minds, not to mention the world around us. But it has a very strong effect. And, and that we do have a choice of how we want to to live through our body, speech, and mind, uh, for better or for worse. Uh, and that how we develop those uh, expressive aspects of our life, uh, Will uh, have suf- uh, significant consequences again, for for better, for worse. So uh, results of past uh, or results of good and a- uh, bad action. He also establishes the notion of uh, beings uh, being reborn, the uh, other realms, uh, and the fact that there are beings who are accomplished uh, in the world, who have attained uh, to uh, this understanding deeply, and who have realized the benefits uh, of the path. Um, so that uh, you know essentially there is there are beings alive who have have walked the path and, and realized the results. Mm, and then also uh, that um, yeah, you know, there's other uh, aspects of, of right view, but essentially uh, those being the the most significant mundane ones, and then the transcendent view of deeply penetrating understanding and realizing the noble. I mean the uh, four noble truths: uh, the origin of suffering, the cause, the cessation, and the path leading to the cessation. So this is a categorical teaching. This is a right view that, that uh, is essential for us to understand if it's going to lead us in the right direction. We can meditate and we can practice morality and, and speak well, uh, have a right livelihood. Uh, but if we don't have any context for why we're doing this, uh, it won't help us reach the goal. And right view has its supports of right mindfulness and right effort. Uh, Right effort, right mindfulness run in circle around right view. The right mindfulness to bring to mind what right view is, to consider it, to evaluate our uh, experience within that context uh, that's the right mindfulness, remembering to do that, bringing that up for contemplation, bringing that up for examination. And the right effort is to uh, abandon wrong view, which would deny those particular aspects of or ignore the aspects of right view, and then to uh, develop uh, the right view uh, as, as we know it. So right mindfulness, right effort revolve around right view. pulling them together. And then the Buddha goes on through uh, right intention, sama sankappa, and right uh, speech, right action, right livelihood, uh, in the same manner, uh, defining them, uh, and then talking about how right mindfulness, right effort, uh, and right view are uh, working in concert with each of those other aspects of the path to fully develop them Uh, that they you can't you have to have right mindfulness to remember what right thought or right intention is uh to consider if you're increasing the wholesome uh qualities of right intention uh decreasing the unwholesome uh ways uh, of wrong intention uh and um that those are our those are the development of the view uh So right intention or right thought being the uh, simplification of our lives, the uh, honoring and developing the uh, renunciation, uh, making things simpler for ourselves so that we're not caught up in material acquisitiveness, uh, and trying to uh, take out that. Drive towards sensory gratification as our only means of, of, of obtaining happiness, and of abandoning uh, and develop, uh, abandoning ill will and abandoning cruelty, and developing non ill will and non cruelty. Uh, these are the mental aspects that come from right view, our understanding that what we uh, what we think. Uh, has a great impact on on our lives and on our practice, so we want to establish this this right intention, this right attitude, um, for simplification, renunciation, uh, non ill will, and non cruelty. Remembering to do that, remembering to establish those positive qualities and abandon their negative counterparts, uh, and uh, developing the effort to to keep doing that. So this is preparing the mind. This is setting the mind aspect up based on that right right view. And there's the uh, aspect of right speech, um, the four aspects of of wholesome speech that we try and develop, and the four unwholesome courses of speech that we try and abandon. uh, The unwholesome ones being lying, harsh speech, uh, tail-bearing, talking about others uh, in a negative way, and also just frivolous speech, chatter, idle chatter. So abandoning those with right effort, remembering to abandon those with right effort, and right mindfulness, and establishing ourselves in, in truthfulness and in uh, gentle speech and in... Um, You know, circumspection about how we're talking and referring to others, and just watching, quelling that aspect of mind that just wants to kind of natter on and on and on. Quality of speech like that, we want to abandon that. So this also settles and and soothes the mind. Same with right action, um, non-harming, non-killing not taking advantage of people sexually, not indulging in in sensuality uh, in a harmful way, and um, uh, not stealing, not taking things that aren't given to us. Uh, All of these with using, again, right effort, right mindfulness, uh, to remember and to apply the effort in the right direction. Right livelihood. Uh, in the chanting, it's not really well fleshed out. It just says, you know, engaging in right livelihood, abandoning wrong livelihood. And the Buddha expands on that a little bit for uh, lay practitioners, people who are in the world earning a living. uh, talks about five forms of wrong livelihood to abandon uh, that uh, are uh, trade in living beings, trade in poisons, um, being a uh, uh, a butcher, like uh, selling you know, uh, killing animals for for sale as meat. Um, I can't remember what the other two are. There are the other two. I remember, intoxicants and weapons. Intoxicants and weapons. Thank you. I was blanking on those. Not dealing in intoxicants. Not dealing in weapons. So those are forms of lay livelihood that would be considered wrong. And uh, for the monastics, it's a little more circumscribed, but uh, very clear, too, uh, even though we wouldn't be engaging in any of those kinds of activities anyway. Uh, with a monastic vocation, uh, the the Buddha's injunction for monastics is to not uh, engage in cajoling or uh, manipulating uh, uh, lay people in any way for gain to to try and, and you know w- w- that we're not supposed to at all try and seek out uh, gain in in any kind of deceptive way or belittling people, uh, shaming them into to giving uh, giving us something uh, or to engage in any kind of uh, trading up you know have a certain requisite and trying to trade up for it get something a little better. Uh, so the, the the Buddha called that wrong livelihood for a monastic. So we're all uh, encouraged to, to uh, develop a sense of contentment uh, and ease of mind through right livelihood, how we uh, live our daily life. So all of these then come together uh, to form a whole of of my a whole of mind training. It's not again. It's not just a matter of uh, developing a meditation practice uh, and uh, kind of developing a certain kind of acumen where we uh, develop very high and powerful states of of uh, mind uh, that then plop us into uh, to complete freedom. It doesn't work that way. It's a it's a complete training of of our body, our speech, and our mind, and they all have to be in harmony for the path to really come to full fruition. For the the wheel to turn so smoothly that it takes us uh, where we want to go. Can't have a sevenfold fold path or a sixfold path that uh, that just takes us. Uh, all the way. It doesn't work that way. It's kind of a, 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 a little bit of a side trip down a couple of the uh, factors kind of popped into my mind this morning too. I, uh, uh, after the uh, morning reflection and before the work period started I was uh, walking uh, from one place outside to another and got uh, uh, got a kind of a a very spontaneous, very fast—what I, what I call a, a drive-by question. <laughs> um, uh, somebody uh, popped up and said, "Ajahn, yeah." And he said, "Are you better at um, are you better at concentration or are you better at mindfulness?" And I, <laughs> it was uh, it was kind of one of these quick-moving comments. And, and I, as I was moving past, and you know, my response at that time was, "Well, you can't separate the two. Uh, and it kind of made me think a little bit about how some of the training and teachings have come to the West, and and there is a uh, uh, some teachers uh, have kind of made some what I would call uh, strong separations, or stronger than one would like, separations between things like right mindfulness and right concentration. Uh, and I think that flavor comes through sometimes in some of the teachings. And I find it more useful uh, to uh, consider those two things as, as much more connected to each other rather than as uh, separate uh, ways of developing the practice or separate, separate, separate aspects of the practice. Because uh, sometimes you hear the teaching uh, that like right mindful, or that mindfulness is what you do to develop insight. So you're mindful of um, all the aspects of uh, what comes through your experience, judging it against um, the the qualities of anicca, dukkha, anatta, and that this is right mindfulness that results in insight, vipassana. And that mindfulness is what you do to develop vipassana. And uh, also uh, that uh, right concentration, uh, development of uh, a focused attention, fixed attention on a, uh, a narrow object, such as the breath at the tip of the nose or at the belly or a single, very single pointed narrow object. This is right concentration. and uh, that it's essentially equated with the samatha practice, this is the settling. And so that you have um, these two separate activities uh, that one engages in depending on whether one wants to develop concentration and calm or whether one wants to develop insight. And then the whole debate that then evolves from that of, you know, do you have to fully develop right concentration or, you know, just so much of of it, defining it in the context of uh, jhanas and uh, attainments of, of uh, those kinds of more sublime states of mind. Um, how much of it do you need to get insight? Um, or can you just develop insight by itself without uh, right concentration? You know, and you get lost, many of us have gotten lost in this quagmire of... of uh, what to do, you know, should I practice vipassana, should I practice samatha, should I practice right concentration, should I practice right mindfulness, when to do either. Um, and to me, it kind of just, that whole approach is very confusing uh, and also very separating. It kind of removes them from their innate relationship with each other, uh, More, in, which is, I think, more uh, in line with the, the teachings as a whole. If you if you reconsider how uh, how to approach understanding these, to me uh, reframing it uh, in a way that I've uh, understood from some other teachers has been extremely helpful. In that our practice uh, of right mindfulness, particularly if you if you read the satipatthana clearly and carefully, you'll see that. Uh, if we use these frames of reference of the body, the feelings, the mind and certain dhammas uh, as our basic frame of contemplation, these are themes for contemplation, frames of references as Ajahn Jeff uses the term, um, that any one of those, all of those uh, will develop both samatha and vipassana. Uh, They Inherently, contemplating them correctly will induce both a sense of uh, of settledness of mind uh, and also uh, insight. And you'll see through the, through the Satipatthana that um, uh, there are, all those aspects will come out. And, and that there's always a, a description of the uh, the contemplation itself. Uh, and then a separate section after each one that talks about how to use it to develop insight. So you're using mindfulness, right mindfulness, to develop both calm and insight. And that then the natural result of calm and insight coming together and being developed uh, at the same time uh, is the uh, coalescence of the mind, the unification of the mind around a a single theme. Uh, And uh, this is what we would call the beginnings of of samasamadhi, the mind collecting, composing itself unwaveringly and quite contentedly around a, a single theme that results in both calm and insight. And when the mind becomes very firmly established uh, around that theme, around that satipatthana theme, then we can say that right uh, sammasamadhi is starting to emerge. So it's not a thing we have to do. Concentration isn't something we have to do. It's, it's the result, it's the coming together of right mindfulness. And they, they support each other and the more Uh, firmly established we become, uh, the more we want to, uh, or the more um, we're able to stay with the themes uh, and take them to their full development. So they can't be separated, none of these can be separated, they all work with each other and support each other. So it is kind of like a a symphony, I do like that analogy, um, that uh, We have all of these what seem like individual uh, aspects of the path uh, working their own way, but the music doesn't really happen uh, without uh, all of the the instruments playing together uh, and attuned with each other, uh, listening carefully and examining over and over again um, where there might be some sort of imbalance uh, and truing it up. Uh, tightening here, loosening there? Uh, are we neglecting one aspect of our of our practice or several aspects of our practice? Are we ignoring our speech? Or are we uh, engaging in various kinds of wrong action that um, upset the balance? Um, are we not putting in uh, any kind of effort at all into developing the mind? Uh, do we need to... Firm up here and loosen up there. Are we too tight? Are we overly extending? Are we putting ourselves out of balance in that way? Uh, So constantly reviewing the the bigger picture uh, and seeing where it is that we can adjust, where it is that we can tune up our instrument in a certain area, uh, where we can tighten up or loosen up the spokes to make the, uh, the whole process run true. The word samma, as in all of the parts of the uh, Eightfold Path, where, which we con- uh, uh, translate as right, samma samadhi, right concentration, right collectiveness, also you know, could be used as the word true. It's the true way. It makes it all run smoothly and in harmony with the other, just like the, the truing of the wheel. So it's a full path, um, and we need to uh, bring it together uh, as a whole to realize the full benefits uh, and, and take it to its uh, conclusion, which is inevitable if we put all of these factors together uh, and we need all of these factors. There's, And the Buddha points out that there's, uh, you know, He's, he doesn't go as far as to say that there isn't any other way to do it, or that there is no other spiritual path that will take us to the same goal. Uh, but he basically said, if, if all of these eightfold factors uh, aren't present, then it won't work. They all have to be present for it to take, take one to the final goal that the Buddha describes. And he did mention uh, in one place that, you know, as far as he could see, there, weren't, there wasn't any other. Uh, practice outside of his dispensation that included all of these factors. If there were, then it would be legitimate. But but, um, it's a very profound teaching and very complete, uh, and it's what we need to find our way to the end of suffering. So um, just a few thoughts uh, to keep in mind, Uh, zooming out the map a bit again. Uh, looking at the overall picture and, and where do we need to, to adjust uh, our, our uh, efforts. So I'll leave that for this evening's contemplation.